0: Our Father, there is no greater joy that we could have than when we realize that by trust in you, which is itself a fruit of your gracious work in us, that our sins have been forgiven, that those, though they were against us, though they were testimonies against us, that in Christ we have been made clean, we have been forgiven, we have been reconciled, we have been justified through faith. And we delight in that. And it is our faith in Christ. It is the reality of justification. It is the proof of the work of the Spirit in us that causes us then to long to live for you. To be sanctified. To be more like our Savior. To love the things you love. To hate the things you hate. And to hold on to the things that you have promised to us. And to that end, Lord, we thank you that we have, by your grace, been called to gather together on Sunday to worship you. We thank you for the freedoms and the blessings we have to do that this morning, and we ask you to meet with us and open up your word to us as we consider the topic of church discipline, uh, that you would teach us, that you would encourage us and spur us on to love and good deeds and to holiness. And it's to this end we pray in your name, Jesus, amen. Well, you can go ahead and make your way, if you want to open your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 18. Of course, this is obviously taking a a slight break from our look at the churches in Revelation. We just finished with Thyatira. We're coming up to the church at Sardis. But there is something that has been mentioned uh, briefly as we've gone through these churches, and particularly we've noted it when we've looked at the church of Pergamum, and then we looked at the church of Thyatira. And that is the matter of church discipline. And so this seemed like a good time to just pull the car over for a moment And discuss what is a very important issue for us as the gathering of God's people It is essentially a time to look at how Jesus instructs us as the church How he instructs us to deal with sin among the members And as we've noted, again, going through the church That's exactly what Jesus is doing as an exalted Lord He is dealing with sin among the members of the churches that he addresses and then he is chiding his people for not doing it already, not addressing the things that should be addressed. One problem that we're well aware of today in the church at large is that there has been a loss of a sense of the majestic holiness of God, of the glory of God, a God centeredness of the universe and of all of God's revelation to us in Christ. The idea of walking into God's presence and saying, Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips, as it was the case in Isaiah, is foreign to most of the people who come to worship on Sunday throughout the land. And therefore, because there is a loss of the sense of the holiness of God and the majesty of God, there is a loss of the sense of a consciousness of sin and of the weight of sin among the church. And by and large... A way to capture that is the churches become more man-centered rather than God-centered. And so the goal of the church, in large part, and the church I mean that in the general sense of the professing church that gathers on Sunday, is less very often about the pursuit of holiness for the glory of God, and more about man as being the center of God's affection and how man can be more blessed by God, how man can be realized more how loved they are by God. And that really becomes the whole sum of what the gathering is. Not to express out from ourselves upward toward God. Gratitude and thankfulness and amazement and humble worship to him. For saving a wretch such as me. But rather centering of how concerned God is. To make us the center of his affections in heaven. And bless us and so on and so forth. So there's, there's an inverting of God's purposes in salvation. Not by replacing it with something that's false, but by leaving out the most crucial and fundamental aspect. And that is that the church is about the glory of God primarily. And because there is a lack then of a the sense of that glory and of the sense of sin, it's often not dealt with. For a variety of reasons, sin is tolerated among the church. There's not really the need or even the very motivation to deal with it, again, because there is a lack of that weightiness of the holiness of God. We see that around us all the time. We see that particularly in our generation paraded before us. We have many examples you could, you could give your own. We see in the SBC right now having to deal with the issues of undealt with sin among the churches of the most grotesque kind. There's a variety of reasons why that happens. One is merely protecting our own little kingdom. One is the false sense that by, if we acknowledge sin as the church, it will somehow ruin our testimony rather than strengthening it. Sometimes it's not addressed because of intimidation, particularly when you're, there's an environment of success, there's intimidation to go to the leaders even though there might be evidence sin. We can think of people like Ravi Zacharias, We can think of people like Mark Driscoll and so on. The issue is is that sin is just left to run its course and cause the destruction that sin always does. There's a lack of placing God at the center of the church. And the end result then is that the professing church very often loses the vitality of spiritual reality in her witness to the world. And as Jesus warned the nation of Israel, the salt has become tasteless and is good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot by men. There's a loss of witness. So church discipline is the topic that refers to the way our Lord has taught us to deal with sin among the body for our good, but ultimately for his glory. It is essentially a call for the church that we again hear repeatedly by the risen Lord to the churches in Revelation. It is a call of the Lord to pursue holiness and pursue truth. And so again, it seemed like a good time to just pull the car over for a little bit and consider this topic. And we're going to introduce it broadly this morning, looking at some large principles, the big picture, some of which we'll swing back around in the next week or two to look at more specifically. But I want to introduce the topic to us this morning. But we are going to focus our attention on one particular passage, and that is in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, where we have one of the most extensive teachings of the Lord on this very issue. So, if you will, read with me. We'll read along with me Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20 And then we'll begin our look at this passage Matthew 18 verse 15 If your brother sins Go and show him his fault in private If he listens to you, you have won your brother But if he does not listen to you Take one or two more with you So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses Every fact may be confirmed If he refuses to listen to them Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And that is the Lord's teaching on how we are to function as His body, as His people in dealing with sin among our members. And so let's begin, and I'm trying to keep with P's, so here's a fancy word for the prolegomena of church discipline. That is merely to say introductory matters, things to introduce the big picture. And first, let's begin then with the context. We're kind of parachuting in to, chapter, to verses 15 through 20. But what is the general context of Matthew chapter 18? In verses 1 through 6, he's dealing with the seriousness of causing one of his own to sin. Who's causing one of his own to sin. He says in verse 6, "If Whoever causes one of these little ones you believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his net and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. In verses 7 through 10, he talks about the seriousness that which we ourselves need to pursue holiness. And that's where he gives a common teaching and he gives it in other places that if, if there's sin in our lives, we need to cut off our hand and our foot. We need to go through the most extreme measures so that we can not be dragged down by sin, but to pursue holiness. And then in verses 12 or 11 through 14, he deals with the seriousness of seeking those who go astray, those who do get caught up in sin, those who do go down a path of unrighteousness. And he says that we need to seek after them. In verse 13, he says, or verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one who is straying? And then in verses 15 through 20, he gives the process of pursuing the one who has strayed and protecting the holiness of the church. And so that's the general context. Then and after this, he's going to give an extended parable on forgiveness. And what does that forgiveness look like when one is restored to the church and one does repent of their sin? So this is, as I noted, the process often referred to as church discipline, although that title does not, Occur in the passage that is the issue that he's addressing So let's begin just very again broadly by giving the definition of some terms The definition of church discipline Well at the very beginning of that and what is mentioned in this passage is the church Is the church ultimately he mentions it and tell it to the church The sin, the, the sin of the unrepentant brother or sister So what is the church? Well, interestingly, Matthew is the only gospel writer to use the word here that's translated as church, a word you're familiar with, ecclesia. Uh, But he uses it here for the second time. He used it the first time in chapter 16, verse 18, where he said to Peter after that great declaration that had been revealed to him by the Father, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That was the first time. And here he uses it again in verse 17. Tell it to the church. It has the basic idea, the term itself, of any assembly, a well-defined group that is gathered together. It's used in the New Testament. It might surprise you to refer to Israel in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, referring to the congregation of Israel in the wilderness. It's used to speak of a secular society, of the gathering of Ephesus, of the civil authorities together. It's, it was a common word. But we understand the term as referring specifically to those who gather on the Lord's Day or on Sunday who profess their faith in Christ and come together to worship Christ. And, and that's how it's most commonly understood now, and that's because... As the church began to grow and spread throughout the Roman Empire, that term became almost exclusively or essentially, eventually, exclusively associated with that very idea. Christians who are gathered together on Sunday to worship the Lord. Now there are two broad categories in which the way that word is used in the New Testament. It can refer to all of those who are actually in Christ on heaven and earth. So everybody who actually is united to Christ In Ephesians 1.22, he says he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. That means the church, all of those who belong to them, all of those who are in him by faith and by union of the Holy Spirit. It most commonly refers to local congregations. And so that's the most common use of the term in the New Testament. To church at Corinth, the church at Rome, the church at Philippi, and so on and so forth. To those who are gathered together as local congregations. And just as a, as a third here, I'll mention it, it's, it's sometimes we use the term in an institutional sense. And that would be most easily displayed in the Roman Catholic Church, which is essentially an institution. But those are the ways that it's generally used. But here, Jesus is clearly using the term in this way. The church is a reference to those who have gathered in his name who express faith in him, who have gathered together to worship him as his people, as people of the new covenant. Now, they would not have understood all of the implications of that at this time, but it is essentially a gathering of those who are of faith in the Messiah of Israel, those who would be ultimately called together and indwelled by the Holy Spirit after he had atoned for sin risen from the dead, ascended to the Father, and sent the Holy Spirit. The church that he is speaking of was established in Acts chapter 2, then with the coming of the Holy Spirit. He is looking forward to what, in giving instructions to, this new group of people gathered in his name. And there is the assumption then, in this gathering together of local congregations, that those who are there in the name of Christ, have been born again, born from above by the Holy Spirit, are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and then are united to Christ. And that we'll talk about more later, but is an undergirding of the very instructions that he's giving here to the church. So then what about discipline? Well, here's a brief definition of discipline. Discipline in a general sense is defined in this way, a system of practical rules for the members of a church or an order. It can also have the idea of to train someone to obey rules or a code of behavior. The basic idea is that the discipline is the right of a community to enforce consequences for behavior that violates a standard of conduct. That there is within a community an identified group certain standards that mark that community as that community and discipline then is the right to hold all of its members to that standard. And so that is essentially what Jesus is doing here and what we mean by the term discipline. Now I bring this up as well because this addresses or infers another key category as we think about church discipline, and that is the issue of authority. That is the issue of authority. Authority is what's necessary to enforce these standards. It infers not only the right to enforce those standards, it Infers the responsibility to enforce those standards. Authority has purpose, it has an end, it has a reason that authority is granted. We can think of that in a variety of ways. Parents have authority in the home over their children. They are to teach and instruct their children. Fathers particularly have an authority to bring their children up in the fear and instruction of the Lord and the discipline of the Lord. Governors and civil authority is there to maintain order in the society. A police officer has authority to uphold the law and and all of the other ways that that is manifest. The apostles had a unique authority as apostles. And Paul said that I have an authority. He says, but it's an authority that can be used to discipline. But rather it's an authority that has as its ultimate end to build up the church. And so don't make me have to use it harshly. I'd rather use the authority God has given me as an apostle to build you up and to serve you. But he, I want you to know, he notes as he speaks to the Corinthian church, that that authority is there to uphold the standards of righteousness in the church. And here he's given authority to the church. He says the church then has a right to enforce standards of behavior within its community. Well, let me ask this question then. On what basis does the church have that authority? And what is the structure in which this authority is exercised among the church? Well, again, let me just mention this briefly here. The only real authority that the church has is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can remember Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and then by that authority given to him, he gives instructions to the disciples or the apostles, and he tells them that you're to go into all of the nations, you're to teach them all that he's commanded, baptizing, making disciples, and so on and so forth. So the authority has as its sort, as its fount, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. He and he alone is the one who ultimately has authority in the church and inherent authority. And that is, again, what we see is Jesus addresses the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 through 3. That he is authoritatively as the risen Lord and as the final authority addressing the churches and, and teaching them his will for them. Now the question then though, if he has the authority, how does he exercise this authority among the church? And there are at least three ways that he exercises this authority within the church. Let me mention them to you briefly. First of all, he exercises his authority through his word through his word. He speaks to his church. He speaks to his people in his word. His word is the written word, is the voice of the living Christ. That's why it is the living word of the living God. It is the living voice of the living Christ. It is how he speaks to his church. It is how he instructs his church. It ultimately is how he instructs the world in the revelation of himself to Uh, All of those who bear his image, but it is uniquely his word to his church And so when he speaks he speaks with authority This was affirmed by the Father when he spoke from heaven in Matthew 17 5 on the Mount of Transfiguration And he said this, this is my beloved son, listen to him Listen to him He is the one you are to listen to, he is the one you are to follow Peter makes reference to this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, and he makes the point there that even beyond that experience that he had on the mountain where they heard the majestic voice of the, uh, from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him, he says, we have something even more sure. They had the actual physical presence of the incarnate son himself, but we have something even more than that, and it is the written word of God, the very Bible that you hold in your hand. And that is how he speaks. And so he says, This we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention. And then he connects that to Scripture in verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And there's a lot there. The word of God is the word of Christ to his church. It is the word of the Father to this church. It is the word of the Spirit. It is a Trinitarian word because it is the word of God. And God is a trinity. And he says here that that word of God, that word of God to his church, that word of God that is sure and that is certain is captured for us on the pages of Scripture. It is a written word. And so Christ exercises his authority to the church Through the written word. The very instructions that he's giving us in how to deal with sin is written in his word. That we are to understand and we are to apply to our own lives and to our lives as the gathered church. There's a second way that he communicates authority. And that is through elders elders. He has established two offices within the New Covenant Church It is the office of elders and it is the office of deacon Elders also known as overseers and so forth They are given by the risen Christ an authority To minister the word of God and to lead the people according to that word And it is something that he has entrusted to them There are many examples of this but let me just give you a few In Hebrews chapter 13 he says this Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, you as the congregation are to listen to the instruction of the elders, those that God has given to lead and to shepherd, inasmuch as their ministry conforms to the word of God. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. He says, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. The term translated overseer refers to the office of elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is the same thing in Titus uh, chapter 1 where Titus is on the island of Crete to appoint elders in every city that he goes to. Those elders are meant to be an example to the flock to uphold sound doctrine and to refute those who resist. And he says let no one disregard you. Now, it is important here to note, however, that elders do not have an inherent authority as individuals. Their authority is solely based on that which is from the command of Christ and according to the word of Christ and the word of God. It is not a personal authority. It is an authority that is bound completely and totally to Scripture. Whenever they, someone that holds the office strays and goes against the word of God, they, they no longer have any authority. They have authority. Have Uh, Left any authority they would have had And in fact are to be confronted For their own sin And he gives instructions about that Also in 1st Timothy If any elder sins He is to be rebuked publicly He is to be rebuked publicly So that others would be uh, taught To fear sinning but he has given this authority It is the authority of Christ Who is the ultimate authority He exercises it through his word He exercises it through elders And he exercises it through the gathered church The congregation So the very end of these instructions is That he, the, the sinning brother is to be brought before the church And he is to be announced before the church If he remains, he or she, unrepentant in that sin Verse 17 of chapter 18 Tell it to the church so as a congregation, as the gathered body of God's people in the Spirit, the church participates in the discipline that Christ is here instructing us to execute. And in reality, it is an authority that is connected ultimately to the keys of the kingdom given to Peter in chapter sixteen, nineteen, verse 19. But in summary, let me say this. Church discipline then addresses the responsibility and authority of God's people to pursue and maintain his standard of righteousness among her members for his glory and for their good. That's essentially the idea of church discipline. It it addresses the responsibility and authority of God's people to pursue and maintain his standard of righteousness among her members for his glory and for their good. Now that's what church discipline is. What church discipline is not. And it's important to note this by contrast. Because we see it wrongly when it is exercised uh, very often in a wrong way. First of all, what church discipline is not. It is not a means of ultimately determining a person's salvation. It is not a means of ultimately determining a person's salvation. Notice what he says in verse 20 of Matthew 18. He says this. He says, let them be to you as, let them be to you as, oh, excuse me, verse 17, as a Gentile, as a tax collector. And by saying Gentile and tax collector, those who are outside of the will of God, those who are outside of the people of God, in essence, as an unbeliever. Those who are not participants in the covenant. But he says, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That means they are behaving in that way. The testimony of their life is is displaying that they are not regenerate. And they are then to be put out of the people of God and made separate. They are to be identified as outside of God's people, not inside and a part of his people. Now, God alone knows the heart. And it is conceivable that even a regenerate person can exercise such amazing levels of hardness as to reach that and then come back to repentance that's possible it is possible and that that is left open as a possibility however the intent behind church discipline And being put out of the people of God is this, is that it marks someone who persists and resists the work of the Holy Spirit to such a degree that the only declaration that can be made about their life is that they are unregenerate and an unbeliever and outside of the saving covenant of God in Christ. And so that is the idea. So it's better to say in those situations that the person is acting and demonstrating themselves to be an unbeliever and has no reason for confidence of their sins having been forgiven in Christ. And that is the point. Now, we'll talk about that later. The idea and how regeneration sits behind that is if somebody is regenerate and has the indwelling Holy Spirit who is opposing sin within us, who is affirming the truth of God's word, that the pressure will be so great when it finally reaches that level, level that it will be unbearable and they will be brought to account for their sins and repent. And if somebody doesn't, then it indicates they don't have that inward ministry of the spirit and they are to be put out. So first of all, it's not a means, however, of ultimately determining a person's salvation. It is a means of the church dealing with somebody who is displaying unbelief and showing themselves to be unrepentant. Secondly, it's not a means for an individual or a group to manipulate by threat. It's not a means for an individual or a group to manipulate by threat. That is exactly the use of this sort of ecclesiastical, if you... Or you could say religious authority that the disciples would have been used to. Let me give you just one example of this that you may be familiar with in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, you remember a man who was healed of his blindness is brought before the leaders of the nation of Israel. He is brought to give an account before the courts of those who have authority within Israel. And he is brought to give an account about who healed him about this Jesus and so there's a rather amusing interchange between this man and the leaders there. But it says there, uh, worth noting here, is that his parents were also brought to testify because they were saying, well, could he have really been born blind? Was he born blind? And they wanted to bring his parents in. And, but they wouldn't come because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. And that was the way that they exercised their authority there it was by a means of intimidation. If you don't. Agree with them, if you don't toe their line, then they will put you out. You can see an example of that as well, even with the apostles. They said they instructed them to not teach or preach in this name, the name of Jesus. And they flogged them, and they put them out. And of course, they continued to because they said it's better to obey God rather than man. The point is, is that sometimes this authority religiously, not only among the the Pharisees in in first century Judaism, but also in the church, power is wielded as a means of bringing into conformity to the will of an individual or a particular group, not in conformity to the word of God, specifically. This can happen in churches who approach sanctification and church life legalistically. We dealt with that a little bit in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 in the church at Ephesus. In this case, in many cases, church discipline becomes a weapon to threaten wit, to to beat people into submission, to cause them to obey or else kind of attitude. In this environment, public humiliation, threat of punishment or being ostracized can come whenever the pastor demands implicit obedience to his authority or the leadership establishes and demands conformity to their own standards of righteousness. Some of you are familiar with this, but I know of people whose names have been publicly mentioned during sermons and their and private counsel has been publicly displayed before others for such things as watching the wrong kind of TV show, going to the wrong places, and so forth. That is a wrong use, that is a sinful use, that is an ungodly use and has nothing to do with the Lord's instructions here. This type of church discipline is marked by harshness, intimidation, and cultivates an environment of fear and hypocrisy. We noted that a bit when we talked about legalism. And that is precisely the opposite of Jesus' instructions here. So what is the goal then of church discipline? Or what are the goals of church discipline? What is it then? If it's not intimidation, if it's not fear, if it's not a way to exercise uh, harshness or the personal will of those who hold some kind of office within the church, then what is it? What are the goals of church discipline? Well, first of all, Jesus lays out a basic goal of church discipline, and that is restoration. That is restoration. The goal of church discipline, of dealing with sin, is that the sinning member would be restored to an obedient walk with the Lord, and therefore the joy and the blessing of walking with Christ and of faith. So the first goal of church discipline is restoration. That is the heart of God. The very heart of God behind this is explicitly stated as well in Hebrews chapter 12. Now, this is speaking of the direct discipline of the Lord, but he says this, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he scourges every son whom he receives. That is part of the Lord's instructions here is that he wants his people to feel consequences for their sin, but the goal of that is so that they would be restored, so that they would turn away from a path that is destructive. In fact, in Hebrews 12, he says the ultimate goal even there of the Lord's discipline is that that we would share in his holiness and know the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so it is the idea of restoration. And he says that in verse 15. Look at the end of it. Go, if your brother sins, show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, what does he say? You have won your brother. That's the goal. Remember right before that, preceding this, is the going after the one sheep who has gone astray. Why? That he might be restored. That he might be brought back into the fold. Here it is. Why would one go to a sinning brother? So that they would be one. One where? One back to Christ. One back back to faithfulness. One back to obedience and the blessing of God. So the goal of church discipline is not the exclusion of the individual, but their restoration to fellowship with Christ, to the body of Christ, and to the path of righteousness. And here is a helpful way to think of it, I think. That the goal of church discipline is restoration. The threat of church discipline is exclusion or excommunication from the people of God being put out of communion with them. But that is a consequence of rebellion that is not the goal of, this, of church discipline and dealing with sin. Again, the goal is restoration. It is repentance. It is the embrace of forgiveness. Just as a little side note, you remember that Paul, when he was uh, addressing the church's response to the brother that had sinned, and sinned specifically against Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says... Be sure not to continue to treat him harshly, but in other words, embrace him. Let him know that he is forgiven because we're not unaware of Satan's schemes that wants to keep bitterness and resentment and create factions within the church, which the church at Corinth was prone to. He says, no, rather envelop him with your love. Rather envelop him with the sense of the forgiveness of Christ. Restore him, bless him, embrace him as a returned brother. And that is the idea in the heart of Christ here. A second goal of church discipline is love, is love. One little phrase that sometimes is missed when we often think of how love is talked about in Christian love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I believe in verse 6. Yes, verse 6. He says this. He says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Now we're going to talk more about that later. But the reality is is that if we love somebody, then we want them to pursue a path in life that is for their good and for their blessing. And sin destroys. Sin brings death. Sin brings the discipline of God. Righteousness brings the blessing of God. And if you love someone, then you will address those things that are causing destruction in their life. It means that you would deal with sin. In Proverbs 13, 24, he says this. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Is as a parent, you withhold the rod of your son. He says that's an expression of hatred. How is it an expression of hatred? It's hating him because it's letting that child continue in a path that will lead to their destruction. That will harden their heart against the fear of God. That will not teach them wisdom about, and the wisdom of walking in righteousness before God. And he says effectively that's like hating them. But when you discipline your son, when you discipline your child, when you make them feel the consequences of foolishness and of sin, you are expressing love to that child. You're wanting their good and you're seeking their good. Now this principle clearly transcends the parent-child relationship and holds truth within the family of God as well. That when there is sin, we love the sinning member by turning them away from that sin and bringing them back to the path of righteousness. It's how we show love. Listen to a few other statements. Proverbs fifteen thirty one: He whose ear listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Life-giving reproof. Reproof brings life. It reveals truth. It calls to the way of wisdom. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother, shame to his family, shame to the people of God, and ultimately even shame on himself. But discipline removes that way of foolishness, or it's intended to do that, so that they will come back and not know shame but honor. Listen to the words of the Lord in Revelation three nineteen. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. It's because of love that he reproves and discipline. He says, therefore, be zealous and repent. So in this sense, church discipline in dealing with sin among the body of Christ is an expression of love for that person. And it's also an expression of love because it serves as a means of protection for them as an individual and for the gathered congregation, the people of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11, do you not know that the unrighteous and he defines that a bit there he says But they shall not inherit the kingdom of God? So if someone is unrighteous and displays an unrighteous life and unbelief, but are allowed to simply fellowship unconfronted among the people of God happily all the way to hell, how is that loving them? It's not it's not an unbeliever should feel very uncomfortable in church they should feel strange within church they should feel like an outsider and want to come inside to have what the people of God have they shouldn't be made to feel comfortable Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 14 that if you're talking gibberish you're going to look like idiots you're going to look silly essentially and people are going to think you're a joke but when you come in and there's prophecy and there's a declaration of the word of God then the unbeliever is going to be come in he's going to be confronted with his sin and he's going to fall down on his face and he's going to repent and worship God and so that is God's goal and plus it protects the individual from being falsely secure in an ungodly life and it protects the church because again Paul says and we'll come back to this at another point but we've repeat, mentioned it several times in 1st Corinthians 5 5 a little leaven leavens the whole lump in other words sin doesn't remain isolated you can't contain sin Sin, John Owen famously said in these pithy words, always aims at its utmost. We see that in our culture with the the different ideologies, LGBT, progressivism, and so forth. But sin always aims at the utmost. It wants total domination over a person and over a people. And so when it's left alone and it's not addressed in our lives individually, when we think we can just keep a little pocket of sin within our heart and not deal with it before the Lord, we are deceiving ourselves. And if we think we can do that as the people of Christ, when there is sin that needs to be dealt with and just think it will go away, it will be okay, it will not. It will not. And so we love and we protect the individual and the body when we address sin. So again, it's not loving to tolerate it. That is also bound, just as a brief mention here, that it's not loving the church because, as is made repeatedly clear by the Apostle Paul in other places, that we who are many, he says in Romans 12, are one body in Christ and members of one another. He said to the church, to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer with it. And that principle can be included to say, if one person sins, that sin is going to affect everybody. It's going to affect the whole congregation. When there's repentance among a ascending men, then the whole congregation rejoices together and embraces him. Now, what is the purpose of church discipline? That's the goal of church discipline. But what is the purpose of church discipline? Well, let me mention a few foundational ones. The first purpose of church discipline is the glory of God. It is the glory of God. Why did he give these instructions? It is fundamentally for the glory of God. How is it to the glory of God? First, because God's name is attached to his people. God's name is attached to his people. Beloved, if we're here and we name the name of Christ, what are you called? A Christian. A Christian, a little Christ. You are identified with the name of Christ. What people think of you is what people think of Christ. The assessment they make of you is what they assess of Christ. Christ. When the people see the church acting silly and doing foolish and stupid things, such as with the extreme charismatic movement and health and wealth and all the other silly stuff that goes on, that is a reproach upon the name of Christ. It is a reproach upon the gospel and the glory of the person and the work of Christ. When God called his people out of Egypt, he was establishing his relation with them publicly before all of the nations. And before all of the nations, God committed himself to them as his, their, his God to his people. They are his firstborn, he said in uh, Exodus 4.22. He says, I am their God and they are my people. And when they sinned, it brought reproach upon the name of God. Quoting from Isaiah 52.5 and Romans 2.24, Paul says this to the Jews. He says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of you. God's name is attached to you. As the... And so we need to be very aware of that. The very heart of the law of Israel and God's covenant with them is stated in Leviticus 19:2. You shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. In other words, you are my people. My name is identified with you. I dwell in your midst, first among the tabernacle, then among the temple, and with the way that you are to demonstrate my character to the world is by displaying my character in holiness, in holiness. And that's all of the ways that he commanded them to do that under the Mosaic covenant. He says, you are my people, and you are to reflect my holy character and glorify my holy name among the nations. And when sin was found then among the people of God in the old covenant, in Israel, he says in Deuteronomy 17, 7, you are to purge the evil from your midst. You are to purge it from your midst. In Deuteronomy 19, 20, he says, the reason for that is that the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. When evil is dealt with and sin is dealt with, people go, Oh, God takes this seriously, and holiness is engendered in the heart of God's people. As a matter of fact, there were approximately 19 sins, roughly, that resulted in being cut off from God's people. And very likely, very possibly, that phrase is meant to say, Put to death, put to death. And the same holds true in the New Testament and in the New Covenant. Just as Israel bore the name of God in the Old Testament, so the church, as we mentioned, bears the name of Christ, and therefore the name of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. We are his witnesses in the world. And so that same command is picked up by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 14, verses 17. He says this, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am Holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. He says this in chapter 2. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You are witnesses to Christ. You are to be holy, because that is a reflection of Christ in you. And we'll, again, expand on some of these things down the road. And so God gives similar instructions to the church here in Matthew 18, but we see also illustrated throughout in the epistles in how we are to deal with sin. How we are to deal with sin. And that is to address it and to remove the sinning brother if necessary, if there's not repentance. Now beyond these instructions, and I want to note three key moments, and we're going to end with this. Three key moments in the life of the people of God in which he punctuated this fact, in which he really wanted to make this point. Now, some of these we've covered, but I want to just look at them again and and maybe spend a little bit more time on them. First is Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Now, Leviticus, as you know, is is a detailed explanation of the sacrifices that Israel was to give to God, it's about the temple worship, it's the idea behind Leviticus, we quoted it only earlier out of 19.2, is holiness, holiness. How are the people to live holy uh, to God and among the nations? How are they to live holy among the nations? And in Leviticus chapter 9, actually, if we go up just a little bit, We have this amazing scene. So God has already established his covenant. He's called them out of Egypt. He's taken them through the Red Sea. He's taken them through the wilderness. They've come to Mount Sinai. And this glorious display of the power and the majesty of God that created fear in the hearts of the people. As he gave them his law to Moses who was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he is establishing the majesty of his holiness. Trying to impress upon his people. And he says this in Exodus chapter 20. So that they would not sin so that they would fear God and they would not sin now at the heart and the very center of God's dwelling among his people was the establishment at that point of the tabernacle the tent of meeting it was the place where the ark of the covenant was it was where the holy of holy was as you went into the tabernacle you had the holy place and then you had the most holy place that was behind the veil and only the high priest entered into that place once a year to make atonement For the sins of the nation Outside you had the bronze altar You had the laver You had these emblems of God providing a way into his presence A way to cleanse the sin of his people And it is how they were to meet with him It is how they were to maintain the covenant relationship with him It is how they were to know the blessing of God And to glorify him among the nations And so Leviticus 9 is recording for us the establishment of this temple And it says in verse 22 that they made sin offerings and burnt offerings and so forth. And then verse 23, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And verse 24, then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. And God was punctuating that moment and showing that he is a holy God. He is a consuming fire. These sacrifices he's also affirming are accepted by him as a means of atonement for the sins of his people. And then you had the establishment of the first acts of the priesthood in in establishing the sacrificial system for the people. And it says in verse 10, Now Nadab and Abihu, they were sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And what happened? And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Fire had come out and consumed the sacrifices and said, this is an acceptable sacrifice. And then the sacrifices were brought unworthily, and fire comes out and consumes the sons of Aaron. A dramatic and dramatic event. And they died before the Lord. He says, they died before the Lord. That is in his presence. God killed them right there on the spot. And Moses immediately looks at Aaron and he says this in verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And so Aaron therefore kept silent. He kept silent. He knew that what was done was right. And not only that, but God commands him, so concerned is he about the holiness of his name he says then, verse six, then Moses said to Aaron, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation, but your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel shall be well, the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out of the doorway of the tent of meeting or you will die for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. And so they did according to all the word of Moses. Moses. In other words, God is saying, Aaron, don't you, through Moses, don't you for a second act like you're sad. Your attitude should display complete agreement with the judgment of God because he is the one who is honored here. Not your sons, not you, not the priesthood, but God and God alone. And he alone is to be honored and he alone is to be treated as holy. And so he says, if you in any way act as though the holiness of God is not the central issue. Then you yourself will be put to death as well. That's how seriously he takes it. And remember the, the, the key why this is punctuated here. This is the establishment of the worship of God's people. And he wants to make a point. He wants to make a point. It's about God. And he will be treated as holy. A second example. Just briefly. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Another important point in the life of the nation of Israel If you remember, so now they've wandered in the first generation in the wilderness for 40 years... And now the second generation has been raised up. They're ready to enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Moses has already instructed them in Deuteronomy, reminding them of the law, exhorting them to what God had said at Mount Sinai, how they were to live as the people of God, reminding them of the blessing and the curses that laid before them. And now Moses then goes off the scene. Joshua takes his place as the leader to go into the land. God dramatically shows himself again with them as they pass through the Jordan River and he parts the waters there as well. They go in, they have a dramatic victory over... The city of Jericho, God causes the walls to fall down. You'll remember to show that it's God who fights their battles. God is the one who's giving them the land. These are God's enemies. You are merely his servants and his people to serve him. And as long as you serve him, he will defeat your enemies before you. But when you sin, then you will fall before your enemies. And so Joshua 7 is an example of that. It's punctuated. So Israel, after their their victory at Jericho, they come into a city of Ai. Ai. This was essentially a small city and they go up, and they only send a few, a portion of their army, and they are defeated, and they are humiliated. And then Joshua goes, oh, woe is me, woe is me. Why were we defeated? God, I don't understand it. Here, here we just saw your power. We're coming into the land, and now we're defeated by this rather insignificant kind of army. And God tells uh, Joshua essentially, stop whining and get up on your feet. It's because Israel has sinned. They have, verse 11 of chapter 7, they have transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. And then so he explains to him he needs to deal with the sin in their midst and then he goes through a process and this person named Achan is brought before them as the one who had committed the sin. And so he says when that gets zeroed in on uh, Achan in verse 19, Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, listen, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done, and do not hide it from me. In other words, give glory to God. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge the justification of God of why he has brought about this defeat before our enemies. And so Achan actually gives a model of confession, He says in verse 20, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. And then he's very specific. I went in among the spoil. I took a beautiful mantle. I took some silver. I took a bar of gold. I coveted them. He talks about what he did. He talks about his motive. And then he talks about how he tried to hide it. I covered it in there. And then he takes everything he was told to go get it. And he brings it before the congregation. And he says, this is what I did. Now we would expect at that point for them to go, hallelujah, praise God. He has repented of his sin. Therefore, let's forgive him and let's again come as the people of God and enter into the land. And that's not at all what happened. What happens? Well, he says this in verse 25. Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day and all Israel stone them with stones and they burn them with fire after they had stoned them with stones And they raised over him a great heap of stones verse 26 that stands to this day why stands as a witness And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger and therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day What was God doing? He's saying look We're entering into the land. I've given you this land. It is a land of promise And I will defeat your enemies because they are my enemies. I will give you the land because it is my land to give. I will establish you as my people. You will be a people who worships me and who knows my blessing. But let me tell you this, that I will not tolerate sin in your midst. You are going in as my people and you are to live and to act as my people. And if you don't, I will deal with sin. And so he dramatically does that. Point is this, God will not tolerate it. He will be treated as holy. He will be treated as holy. Now, we might say that that is the God of the Old Testament. It's not the God of the New Testament. Well, we're going to pick it up here next week. But let me just remind you as we come to the Lord's table that that is to forget what the Lord's own actions were when he went into Jerusalem as their king. What did he do? He made cords of rope and he cleared out the temple. And he says, you're treating my father's house as a robber's den. This is to be a place of prayer. This is where the name of God resides. I will not tolerate this trampling of his courts. And then later after he gives this excoriating rebuke to the leaders of Israel, he says, and by the way, Jerusalem is gonna be destroyed. Not one stone, why? Because it is not a place of holiness. It's not a place where my name is honored. We'll pick it up there, but we are to be reminded of this, that God calls us as people. We are people who stand in grace. We are a people even as we come to the table this morning who remember that our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ given to us. His obedience ultimately displayed on the cross standing in our place offering his life as an atonement for our sin as propitiation for our sin turning the wrath of God away from us by placing it on his son bringing us into his near fellowship as sons and daughters forgiven of our sin given a hope which is unshakable all of that in Christ, but he says this, but I will be treated as holy. And coming into my, and experiencing my grace is not an excuse for, to ignore sin, but all the more you should abhor it. All the more you should love holiness. All the more, as you've been awakened to the glory of God, you should pursue that glory by living righteously. And so the table reminds us of that. And... That is precisely in the context of the words we so often repeat of 1 Corinthians 11, that very thing. He says, some of you are coming in an unworthy manner. You're not treating it properly, and so you're not dealing with sin among you, so I'm going to. So some are sick, some of you sleep, but I'm going to deal with it. So God takes it very seriously, even as we come to the place to remember his grace, that we live and demonstrate that grace in our lives. And so it's a time of reflection for us to remember his goodness and his mercy It's a time of reflection for us to consider our own lives and our own role within the church of God and the body of Christ. It is a time for us to reflect on anything that we need to deal with in our lives. And it's a time to remember that we are accepted only by grace, but it is that same grace which he will enable us to live for him. So let me pray, and then the men will pass out the elements, and we'll remember the table together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ, because we realize, each one of us who knows you, that we have sin, that we have sinned against you, and our sin grieves you. And yet, we are not left in our grief, but we are left in hope. We are in our grief over our own sin, turned again and again to the cross of Christ where our sin was atoned for. And we say with David, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And we delight to realize that the iniquity we committed, the condemnation for it was imputed to Christ. And our Lord Jesus Christ, your perfect life, your perfect righteousness, your perfect obedience is imputed to us, and we are counted free. For freedom we have been saved, the freedom to live for you, the freedom to know you, the freedom to walk in righteousness. And so as we come to your table and remember these things, please stir up these truths within us for your everlasting glory and for our good. We ask this in your name, Jesus, amen.